process, but I'm not going to make any commentary about what's going to happen after the season. Our focus right now is on getting ready for the Seahawks. I mean, look, nobody's happy with where we are. I mean, all of us take responsibility. Quite frankly, none of it's been good enough. You know, we haven't played well enough. We haven't coached well enough. I haven't done a good enough job from the team building perspective. You know, we've had, I would say, pockets. But the bottom line is, collectively, like, we haven't all performed well enough. And, you know, all of us have to take responsibility and we're all accountable. Um, Yeah, I'd say the reality is, if I'm being candid, Um, We knew, I knew that this was a pretty massive undertaking when I took over in January, that there was a lot of work to be done. And welcome to another episode of the Turn Up For What podcast talking your Houston Texans. Straight from the Great British Isles, the Texans were officially eliminated from the playoffs on Sunday. Not that it was any new news, but it came as uh, perhaps another blow in what was a pointless game, losing 31-0 to the Indianapolis Colts, um, and perhaps what's been a bit of a pointless season all round. Um, it's hard to piece this agenda together every week, I'm not going to lie, but hopefully to talk us through it and, and provide some context, as she always does. I'm delighted to be joined by Stephanie Stradley. Steph, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Apologies. I missed you last week. That was... Uh, bad time management on the uh on the no. tailgate tour front so <laughs> apologies about that but um well it you, was a you good... know it, it used to be back in the day that people would show up to the tailgates earlier so you, it would be easier to hit multiple tailgates but it's pretty empty <laughs> these days yeah well yeah i mean i i compared it to 2018 was it 2018 yeah 2018 against dallas um and that was probably the busiest and the best I've seen it. Um, oh no! Like when when the Texans were relevant, relevant, it was crazy. Like it was so crazy that they had to give out um, uh, tailgate passes or or give tailgate passes to or sell tailgate passes to season ticket holders because there were so many people out there that didn't have tickets that just wanted to be tailgating. And, you know, I get why they did it, but now it's, you know, it's the weirdest. It's just weird. Everything's weird. Well, yeah, I think so. And then even, I, well, I remember even just talking about the tailgates, I remember the Atlanta one in 2019, that was the last time it was over pre-COVID. And, yeah, you could feel the anger was building then, well before that, and that was obvious. Um, and then now it's it's probably turned to apathy, I think, moreover, and it's, it's it's sad because like I love my time there. Um, I would never not come back if I've got the opportunity to do it. It's a great city. The people are amazing, and the culture is amazing. And you know they just deserve better. I think you know and I just if that's that's my that was my overriding emotion watching the Jets and you know and we walked out of the third quarter because I just didn't want to watch it anymore. It was it was yeah. Pointless. I mean I think I think the biggest thing that I've heard from tailgaters and people that are not out there is um it feels bad to be out there because if you've seen it before you know what it's like you know there is the point of view that if you show up to the the team that you're encouraging how leadership is right now so that's not a good feeling like you know the way that the texans have been marketing themselves is hey you get all these exclusive offers to be a season ticket holder and frankly season ticket holders don't want it to be exclusive season ticket holders want everybody to like the team and that gives them more value for their tickets but at at this point it costs so much to even have one parking space 
and show up and spend that time and that energy and effort. And then for some of those larger tailgates, it costs a lot of money to put those on. And for a lot of people, they're just like, you know, they have different reasons. You know, the, the main reason is, you know, they don't want to encourage it. They don't want to spend their time with it. And then for some people, they don't feel safe, you know, they don't feel safe being in, in groups of people. And that's not something that's really widely acknowledged. But, you know, like, for mm. example, uh, I know a number of people who have vulnerable people in their households and don't feel comfortable with big groups of people. So it's just a whole bunch of bad things all at once. Yeah, I suppose COVID and the, the downfall of of the Texans have sort of intertwined themselves to so we'd always have a multiplying effect to a degree, and I think the team will probably lean on that a little as an excuse. Um, but we know no, we know there's going to be no. There's already excuse making already happening. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, there is. I I just don't think that they interact with their fan base in real ways. You know, like if you, for example, if you look at the things that they send to season ticket holders. There is there's barely any mention of of COVID protocols or, you know, safety things like don't show up if you're sick, like just a basic thing. Like you have to go onto their website to find something that says that um, there's maybe a couple signs at the stadium. But I mean, the bigger, bigger issue is the way that the the rebuild happened was communicated and and promoted in just an absolutely insulting way. Like everybody inside the organization, outside the organization thought that 2021 was going to be a real restart, hitting the reset button. And that was what was implied. You know, here's, here's the committee of people we're consulting and here is the list of people that we're looking at. And here's, you know, the people that we're thinking of getting as the GM. And then at the last second, it's like, oh, surprise, this isn't happening and you should feel really great about it. And, you know, it's strange. It's really strange. Like you don't, you don't talk to people that way. Like you're asking for people to spend thousands of dollars for the season ticket holders or people who just watch who aren't season ticket holders. You're asking for their time. And they don't believe in what you're doing. And they shouldn't because you haven't communicated in a way where they should believe in what you're doing. I mean, all of the most respected voices that people trust to, to tell them, you know, what's happening with Texans football have their hair on fire. I mean, and, and, like, let's say you wanted to, to defend what they were doing. They don't give you much reason to defend it. Like, even if you were wanting to, like there are, are there good things happening with the Texans? Yeah, I, I can see some of those things, but they're so swamped by the things where people are like, why are you doing things this way? This is really strange. You know, do you not hear yourselves? Do you not understand what people expect of you yeah i think i mean i suppose i i keep on the reflection as well that like they say one thing and do another i think and that's that's the 
Yes. That, that's the thing. And I heard uh, Mike Lombardi talking on his podcast, if you never listened to that, it's a good one from a GM front office point of view. Um, just a, a bit more of a holistic look at the game in terms of the, the structure of what's needed to build a team. And you know, and he, and he said that the week, I just don't know what their plan is and where it's going, where it's headed. There's no signs of progress. The team are getting worse this year yes. rather than getting better. So, you know, it has been a year of, of nothing. And I think that's, that's the trouble. I, I, I find that it feels like we've got, you know, too many irons in the fire of different different agendas, different kind of, you know, things like exactly what, you know, our former quarterback said at this end of last season. Too many people thinking they've got the power and, and basically pushing and pulling the whole thing in different directions. And it just looks rudderless, I think. And I've, yes. I've not seen, I've not watched or listened to the whole clip of Casario today on, on his, his weekly interview or bi-weekly interview, whatever it is now, with Payne and Pendergast on 6.10 on, on a Tuesday. But he was asked about David Cully and he just said, look, we're not going to talk about next season. So I don't know if that if, if it's been that bad, Steph, that engenders a change. From my point of view, basic operations on game day, poorly coached team I didn't think we'd be saying that compared to from our previous you know compared to our previous incumbents but it's the team has got worse uh, we, we look yeah. to not function on a very basic level front office and on the field so it feels like maybe a change is going to come and certainly that was intimated to me a number of times at the tailgate last week that you know that there would be a change this off season what kind of change though you know well, like at, yeah, at, some, yeah. At, at some point the way that you see that the way that they conduct stuff just makes you feel bad for everybody involved that they have created a box themselves like basically they have boxed themselves into a position Casario came into the box not really understanding its nature and a lot of it seems to kind of pander to what they think that leadership wants or that the McNairs want like how do you structure a team the way that the McNairs want it? And I don't think, I don't think that this reflects the way that they really do want things done. Um, I, I just think that, okay, going back a little bit, the way it's been described to me by people that know all of the principles is just that when you're in that position, it's very difficult to know who to trust and who to listen to. Hmm. And, you know, everybody at the top of this organization is new to the roles that they're in. You know, Cal McNair was at his father's side. He saw lots of things, but he was never the guy, right? Nick Casario, I've heard many great things about his abilities as it relates to the draft. But nobody has been in a situation where, like this, you know, your starting quarterback has very serious allegations against him and all sorts of nonsense going on. So it's hard to deal with kind of the crisis aspects of the job when that's not been part of your job and also the forward-facing parts of your job because he owns this now, whatever it is. Jack Easterby had a very limited role um, at, at various times, uh, he had guidelines where he was in new England, like everybody in new England knew who the boss was and he did whatever his role was there. And his background is, you know, 
character coaching of an individual level, but not running a whole franchise. And so when you go from one role to a much more visible public role, it's really hard. Like it's a hard, it's hard to get all of that criticism and not kind of conflate all the criticism. You know, so you put, and, and the same thing goes with David Cully. David Cully had one role. Now he has a whole different role and different expectations for the role. And the way that this is structured is not workable. And what I was told when, you know, the whole transition was happening is that some people just did not want to get into the Texan situation. A, because of concerns that ownership would meddle and make things more difficult for them. Two, that Jack Easterby is too influential in the building and that they, you know, people did not want to be undercut by somebody who does not have a traditional football background. So like, you know, they had that kind of flat org, you know, where, you know, they're doing things by committee, but you can't run, like, tell me which football organization has a head coach that was undermined before he even got the job. Like if, if we go backwards, you know, think about like when they were first talking about like, what are you looking for in a head coach? They're like, we want a raw, raw guy that, you know, makes people want to run through a brick wall or, you know, there's different ways to pick your head coach and, you know, you know, you can pick an XO guy or, you know, you can pick, you know, a motivator guy. Well, I mean, that's an insulting thing to say about the guy that you hadn't even picked yet. Like, you want the head coach to be somebody that everybody respects in his role and not just as a motivator, but has, has a good idea of how they think that an organization should be run, not as a committee thing, but as this, I'm the dude, follow me, and this is the reason why. And you don't get that kind of sense of confidence from that. Like, like for example, Dom Capers, when he came into the Texans, you know, obviously facing a very difficult situation, literally building things from scratch. You know, he had a big old binder of like how he wanted to do various different things. There is no coherent football philosophy for the Texans. Like, you tell me what it is. Yeah, we don't have one. I think that's the problem and it's it's obvious, isn't it? And yeah, and I think as well that you know you talked about a change. What what the change was intimated to me was and like there's tailgate rumors, so you hear them all the time. So and ninety nine percent of them aren't true. But they said Cully would take a step upstairs and they would bring in a new head coach for next season. How much of the coaching staff would be turned over? Uh, it was a bit unclear, but it feels it just feels like you know basic stuff can't happen a Sunday, um, regardless of the talent. Um, and all those you know fundamental building blocks of the of the organizational structure are detracting from those from those you know those roles and are distractions and and they're not helping. But it feels like a change needs to happen. But as you said, whether it's not and the confidence and the people that are there that are going to make those changes and the people that are interfering, because I would suggest if I was a head coach, I would view the way in which Casario goes about his business on the on, erring on the side of interfering when you consider it in the context of a traditional G, general manager in the in the National Football League. So it makes you worry. I think it may. It may I watched I, and I'll make a confession now. I, I, not for the first time this season. I didn't watch the game live on Sunday because yeah, yeah, I was just a bit a bit fit. I've had enough uh, to be honest. Of watching that offense. Well, and it's uh, and it's not. I mean, 
it doesn't look like football. No, yeah, it's not. On offensively, certainly. Defensively, uh, you can yeah. see what Lovey's trying to do. There's just the talent's not there to execute what's a basic scheme. You just need as many great athletes as you can get, you know, a top But end if they're athlete. on the field all the time, like... Yeah, it's irrelevant, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's trying to find small positives and it's trying to find small sure. bits. And, and, and I think it's, it's when you're watching, watching that, it's, it's tough to watch back and try to look at the stats. It's, it doesn't read well, obviously. Um, the scoreline, of course, does not read well. It was always going to be like this this season, I think, you know, and these were always going to be some of the dark days and the dark weeks that we're trying to well, process. Well, once, once we knew, once we knew how it was going to be organized, like, yeah. for example, we, you know, like, you can see that the defense is doing pretty well relative to how little help that they're getting on the offense. And part of that is, you know, Lovey, Lovey has been an NFL coach. You know, he has experience doing that. Um, when, when Gary Kubiak came to the team, there was not that much turnover in, in, um, the offense, but the offense, even with David Carr looked better because that's coaching, coaching matters. And, um, I think the hardest thing, there's two hard things about this. I think one thing is there is this view. I, and, and I'm pretty sure of this at the highest levels that, we should grow people into their jobs, that we can grow them into their jobs. But I think part of it is, yeah, you can grow people into jobs, but we're talking about a billion dollar organization that if you don't do things the correct way, people get actually hurt. People get actually hurt. You know, like if you don't know what you're doing, you can get people hurt. Like, this, you know, tanking in, in baseball, okay, it's losses. Tanking in basketball, it's losses. If you don't know what you're doing and you're putting coaches in positions that they're not well equipped for, or you're elevating uh, players to positions that they're not well equipped for, or you're moving players around because you're trying to just try out stuff, or you have no chemistry with your team whatsoever because you just grabbed a bunch of guys, there are risks involved with that. Like there are risks involved. Like, would you, would you feel comfortable if you were a, a good wide receiver that you're not going to get <laughs> crushed? Or if, if you're, if you're a quarterback, like Davis Mills has not started that many games in his whole college and, and NFL career, but you know, he's backup. And so that's what he's going to be doing. And, and, um, thrown under the bus a little bit this last press conference about the, the failures that he had the last game. And the answer to that is like, he is, you know, this isn't just tanking. This is, you know, like for example, F1, F1 is a sport where if your team's not fully together, you can hurt people. Like it's not just that you finish last, you can hurt people. So like, I would like to see more urgency more urgency, not like growing people into their positions, but more urgency in having something that looks like NFL football. Yeah, no, I think so. And it's, it's uh, the theme of people being in positions they shouldn't be in, obviously, is there's, there's and, one. And going back to your point earlier about, yeah, 
Well, and going back to, to the, what you were saying earlier about Casario, I mean, it's not David Culley's fault that it was called Camp Casario on Sports Radio 610. But where else in the league do you have the GM having such an outsized role? And the reason for it, I mean, it's good that he's more communicative than you know previous GMs have been, not necessarily to his own benefit at times because he doesn't understand some of kind of the context and history that Houstonians see when they hear some of the things that he says. But how, how would you want to come to a place where the head coach is so diminished and such a figurehead that 610, I mean, it's a choice of 610, not the Texans. 610 calls it Camp Casario, and why wouldn't they? Alliteration. Yeah, well, yeah, it's more than that, I suppose, of course, because it's, yes. it's, it's, it, yeah, it's, as said it before, it's, it's used the phrase overbearing, and it is, and there's a, yeah, my, 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 my and my thought was every week when he speaks, you think, do you think you'll take, you know, when you bring a true head coach in that you can see a three to five year plan, you know, should you be, should you be blessed to be in such a position? But, it, you know, if, if that situation then arises, will he then take a step back and, 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 fulfill more of a predominant, you know, the pr- predominantly what people would class as the traditional role. And I don't know if he will, because I think when you do that, he obviously sees that as the way he can add value, um, doesn't get involved in other stuff. He's his comrade that brought him here, probably takes on a lot of that and probably doesn't go, do a good job, I'm, I'm guessing here, but I'm, I'm going to go and I will... Uh, well, I just don't think that, I just don't think the way that the power structure is, is that the people at the top trust anyone. Hmm. And you know, par- paranoid, would you go as far as saying that? Yeah, I, I think that there's some of that. And I think some of it is when you don't trust people and you're under fire, um, it hurts. Like you're working so hard. It hurts when that's happening. But part of it is they have made things more difficult than they've had to like they're having some of the same issues that some of the New England people have had when they left the Belichick fold and go to other places and realize and and don't really realize kind of the how context works with communications. That if Bill Belichick says something, it's heard differently than if somebody else says it. And he, he gets away with some arrogance because he's the man. Everybody knows he's the man. He knows more about football than, you know, any of us will ever know. Like he's, he's a subset of one, right? But when other people hear that, they don't hear it the same way. It, it sounds kind of, kind of paternalistic, like, oh, let's explain NFL football to you, Texas Roots. And it's not intended that way, but the communication is more than intention. It's, it's context. And so we have had the unique context of listening to Bill O'Brien since, you know, he came to the team and, you know, he had pluses and he had minuses, but at some point people got kind of sick of some of the New England touchstones. And so I think that there's this sense of, well, 
we're not going to be New England and we're not going to be Denver. We're going to kind of mesh things, but we're going to be everything all at once. And it's not a coherent football philosophy. Yeah. And, and really the coherent football philosophy needs to be coming from the head coach. Like I get why Houston, Texas, or the Texans don't want a super powerful head coach because they just had that and it didn't work out well. But I mean, there's something between, you know, the head coach at, named as GM, which was insane to David Cully, who isn't what anyone ex wanted or expected in the rebuild, which is the guy who is going to define what the culture is for the organization. And, and you know, culture has been kind of overblown as a thing, but part of that is the most powerful and influential person in, in the organization comes from a character coach background. He's kind of paranoid about some of the things that have been said about him, obviously. And so it's almost going too far that direction. Like if you have a hammer, everything is a nail. If if you are trying to validate yourself and your culture, then everything is going to be about culture and not about like, hello, let's, it's a, it's, it's a football team. And, and I think some of the stuff that they don't recognize is, you know, there's 20 years of history where there have been good things that the McNairs have done and, and, and um, have supported the community, but they also had some bad tendencies that people have resented and have pushed people away from the organization. And I don't think that they have a really good understanding of, of people's touchstones, whether they're valid touchstones or not valid touchstones. And when you have somebody as powerful as Jack Easterby in his role, people aren't, people are so distrustful that they don't like, even if they say something straightforward, they people won't take it at face value because there's such a lack of trust. Yeah, I know, and I mean it goes back to that point. And I've seen you quote it many times. You know, trust us to do what's right, and it comes across as a kind of yeah, out of touch, de tone deaf. All these kind of phrases we've used a hundred times before. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, you, you, I, I almost feel Cully's position now is untenable with the way this season has gone, if you think of the big blue losses. Because, you know, as you said, and again, we're stuck in the past because this season has been pointless in so many aspects. And it's like the game, like, uh, there's, you know, I watched it back, the old 22, to take a take a view of it this morning. And there's nothing really you can take from it, I don't think. You know, the, the storylines for the season have already been written. There's about two or three players, some of which probably won't be here because either I know one, no, I'm pretty certain one doesn't want to be here. Um, at cornerback and and uh, and and Malik Collins has probably played his way into a bigger contract in a better situation. The rest is all kind of nothingness. You got a couple of rookies there. Well, I mean, Brandon Cooks out and out said in Texans radio that you know he's telling everybody and he's preaching to everyone that you know whether or not you have a place here, you know you're making tape and people are, like. Yeah. We're already talking about making tape. Yeah. And <laughs> you got it. <laughs> I mean, it's I just feel bad for everybody involved. Like, you know, they they promote all these players and I'm like, I feel bad for the players. The play yeah, do the players deserve to be in a 
situation where the stands are full? Yep. Yes, they do. And is this the way to do it? You know, like I, okay. I came into the off season with the point of view of Jack Easterby has a long-term contract. Nick Casario has a long-term contract. How, how is it that they can go forward with this team in a way that, um, that people will believe in? Like, how are they going, how are they going to build that? And, you know, and I was asking questions like, um, why is the Houston Texans a place where players would want to be here? And I didn't really get a good, I didn't get a good back. Like, I don't think that they fully understand how, how they come across. Part of it is they're so interested in looking for leaks that just the obvious interactions that they have with other people, they don't realize how off-putting it is in the current situation that they're in. Like as much as, you know, Jack is trying to make things good inside the building and try to make it a, a, a good place to, to be, every single person in that building knows that their job would be easier if there was a less high profile person as the head of football ops and um, in charge of culture for the whole organization, because you can't have somebody that influential and that um, divisive in that role. Like that's, I don't see how you go forward with that. And, 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 and part of it is, kind of the reaction to the Sports Illustrated reporting. Like, I think they saw it as these things are all unfair and we've been dealing with some things and the things that are being said are unfair and personal. And some of it was, but sometimes things are personal. Like, as I understand it, the people that like Jack really, really like Jack like interacting with them. There's some people that like Jack and go, oh, this is a terrible role for Jack. It's one thing to be supportive of somebody in an individual basis. And it's a different thing where you're saying, I'm not judgmental, but I'm also judgmental. Like that's, that's, a, hard, that's a hard line to kind of walk. But then the people that don't like Jack and don't trust Jack, they have their own reasons for that. And so how do you make that work in a team? And, and I think the Sports Illustrated reporting was everybody with their hair on fire going, we want the Texans to work. We like the McNairs. This is not something that's good for the McNairs. And really, if, if Jack listened to all the things that he has tweeted out over the years about distractions, about leadership, he would resign. He is hurting the people that he, he says that he, he likes. Yeah. I mean, this is harmful to the McNairs. It is. 
And, and, and do you think they don't see that because they don't trust enough people to listen to those opinions or are they just too ignorant to, to realise it? I think, I think part of it is that he is a, a persuasive person. And he, like, think of the person who makes you feel good about yourself and reinforces your view of the world and tells you things that feel good in your heart. And then think of like the rest of the world thinking that this guy is a phony and blah, 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 and all sorts of personal attacks. Think of that person. Do you, do you have that person in your head? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I know one specifically, but <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Well, so like if you have somebody that you have gone through a shared experience with and you have that relationship with, it's really, and, and, is, and in some ways, football supports this because, you know, there is that general view that you do have to block out the noise, that fans do have a lot of nonsense points of view. But this is not this is not just fans. This is like people within the organization, people that interact with them. And part of it is a, just a different football sensibility that, you know, there are there are football code things. Right. Of, and there's football ways of doing things. And so when somebody new comes into an organization and is doing things that are kind of against football code or are one way to this group of people, but act a different way to this group of people, it's really off-putting. And it, it causes that kind of division. And I don't think it's repairable. Like I was trying to think, how could this be, like before the season, because I could see this coming, the original Casario press conference, if you reread it now, I mean, it was insane at the time and it was super insane now, like if you really look into it, and so this was all very, very predictable, but you know, there's the other part of the point of view, which is, you know, being a billionaire is weird. Like it just, people don't, people don't engage with you in real ways sometimes because they want things from you, right? And it's hard to know it's hard to get a sense of what's real when you're in that position. It's just a very strange, strange situation. So I don't, I don't know how they get past. I don't know how you could keep Jack in the building in, in any kind of role, because there's just such a lack of trust. There's this sense that he's going to stab you in the back. And it seems obvious, I think, <laughs> for a long time. And we're just seeing all these mistakes and all these misplaced trusts, I suppose, from ownership just manifesting itself every Sunday, you know, when you think when you watch. Well, it's, but I mean, part of it is like the way that the Sports Illustrated article was respond, or the both of them were responded to, that they looked at the big picture issue, which this is a personal attack. And really what it was is you are saying things that are off-putting to people in ways that you don't realize. And was there any apology for that? No. Part of the response was, like, for example, there was the discussion of the speech at the end of the year that was, like, all pro Deshaun Watson didn't mention J.J. Watt. 
and that people thought that that particular speech was weird and creepy, right? That was the implication from the Sports Illustrated article. And, and what was the response to that? Was it to apologize? No. It was to say, well, some people liked the speech. Some people came up to me afterwards and said great things about it. And really, that's part of the Texans right now. The Texans are structured around flattery of the people who are above you. And if you flatter the people above you, then you're good. If you say truthful things, they think of you as the enemy. And, you know, it, it's been very difficult, me personally, to talk very directly about these things because I don't, like, people are dealing with enough stuff right now. Like, football's supposed to be something that is uplifting to, to folks, and it's become not because of just, like, who is this guy? Why does he say the things that he does? Why do the Texans respond the way that they do? Why do they pretend like everything's great when it isn't everything's great for everybody? Yeah, I think it's funny when you say that just a couple of points there. So, like, there's, for me, and I've always been, I've been reasonably critical of Nick Casario. I don't think what he's done this season has, has helped us in any really material way. If, if anything, it's perhaps hindered us to a degree into future years. But the the way in which, obviously, there was the linkage between them, obviously, the shared agents and all that kind of stuff. And then if you saw the, the interaction with Casario, with John Robinson, pre-Titans game that was on the broadcast, I don't know if you saw that. To me, that just yeah. came across as weird, uh, uh, like body language, sort of like cripple over laughing. Like nobody does that really, um, unless they're trying. To... I don't. I don't know. Like yeah. I think. I think a lot of these people know each other, and that's fine. Yeah. I. J- I just. I think the thing that is the thing that's more off-putting to me is his. You know, he has very much defined like the Houston Texans are this hmm. right, and the. I don't see how his vision, as he has articulated it, looks like an appealing place for any player to want to come to the Texans because in some ways, I don't think it's intended, but the way he communicates makes players sound, sound like churn. Like, you know, there was like that, that thing where, you know, he was doing all these transactions and then there was like this kind of thing on 610 is like, oh, well, you know, if you guess the number of transactions, you get, you know, $100 from Casario. Like, that's dehumanizing. Like, every time that there's transactions, those are people. People coming in and out of the building. And you know what? I hope that they're treated well. But, I mean, the language that you use matters. And the way that he describes the, the culture of the Texans is, you know, team before self, you know, suffering and sacrifice and that and that. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, sure. Do people have to work hard in the NFL? Yeah, everybody knows that. The question is, why do you work that hard? You might be able to suffer and sacrifice for Bill Belichick because you know that he knows his stuff. Do you want to do that for the Houston Texans? Do you want to sacrifice your career for the Houston Texans? And, and it's not even his actual point of view, because when he was asked originally, hey, you have all these challenges you know, with the Houston Texans, his response is, this is fun. This is fun. And the thing is, football is supposed to be fun. Anybody that spends any amount of time doing football stuff, they don't do it because I'm thinking of sacrificing and suffering. 
they're doing it for fun. Now, is every bit of it really fun? You can make it fun. But if you want to win at the highest level, that's a part of it. And you could hear, you could hear Brandon Cooks talk about his view of culture was about love and fun and doing things together to make something bigger than yourself. Like that was a sensible approach to me, but it might be helpful to Nick Casario to think of everything in kind of a monk-like way and that everything is sacrifice and suffering, but 31 other teams have a more appealing, or not maybe 31, but more teams. Some of them are very appealing, but like, I am not a Jerry Jones fan, but there is no doubt that Jerry Jones structures his organization to make it a place where players want to be there. Why would anyone want to be at the Houston Texans? Because they put lights up in the locker room. That's not the thing. Yeah, it's misplaced. um, The football is the thing. You need to make it a place that's appealing to play football. And it's a, their vision of the Houston Texans does not reflect that Houston, Texas that you enjoy coming to. Yeah. No, that's right. Their vision isn't appealing and it's inartful the way that they've handled everything. And part of it is they're in new roles. They don't trust people and they don't have the football focus in the head coach of why the why of why we're all doing this. Yeah, because I think you've got you've got a left tackle that you paid a king's ransom for. It's basically they basically admitted yesterday he's not really all that interested in playing, um, and he's going to you know sit out into. Would you be interested? Well, in no, playing for the no, and I, I don't blame him. I don't blame him. But I just, but again, it's it's a byproduct of their culture. They've fallen out with Zach Cunningham. Um, and I don't know what the you know the league the sort of league wide process is if a player missed a COVID test, but you've fallen out with him, you've fallen out with Justin Reed, and then a week later you're you're nominating him for the Walter Payton Man of the Year award. So you know I think well he was nominated before that. All right, okay, but, okay, yeah. it comes out yeah, but yeah, but again it just shows you like there's guys you know and like Justin Reed's one guy that it would seem quite difficult to to fall out with, but it just shows you that kind of culture element. I know Casario went and addressed it directly when he spoke to the media a couple of weeks ago. Um, but yeah, I think I think the sort of the kind of introverted, trying to act extroverted, kind of robotic kind of way comes across at times. Doesn't help all this kind of bad stuff, but it feels like they keep searching for bad headlines, I suppose, as well when they're trying to fall out with players and more kind of focus on them of stuff off the field. And it's just yeah, it feels like and it, it, well when when you when you chop all those kind of points that we've just made, I suppose a thirty-one to zero defeat is not a surprise in any way because. You know, you've got to get it right off the field before you can get it on, and it it just seems like there's a lot to be a lot to be you know uncovered this off season. And I don't know what changes they'll make if it will be in the coaching staff, but there's all. And I think. Well, I mean, I I mean the the thing that's hard for me is all the people who think that the McNairs value their pals higher than they value everybody else that specifically they value Jack Easterby over everyone. And it, it, you know, you, they can argue against that, but I mean, just look at their choices and their words, you know, there was a time that they could have separated from them. And early on, it was like, you know, he, he didn't offer to resign and he's staying and without really explaining 
why this particular person was so important to everything. So there is, there are some people that are like, okay, Nick came into a situation that he did not design that the choice he had his hands tied with some things, but 2021 is becoming more and more on him. And it pains me to know all the people that are like, if they don't get rid of Jack by the end of this season, I can't do this anymore. I don't believe in him. I don't believe in an organization that puts so much trust in him. And you can do better. You're a billion dollar organization. You don't have to have your offensive coordinator grow into his role. You can actually get an offensive coordinator if you have a structure of your organization that isn't off-putting to, to outsiders. There are, and they don't seem to care anything about external reality other than the one that they're creating for themselves. And part of that is the newness to their roles and just a lack of confidence in the way that they they do things that they're very defensive about a lot of things. And part of that is they can't explain a lot of it. Yeah. That's the hardest bit, right? Cause I think if you come out and say, look, this is what we're trying to do. Um, yes. Then people would understand a little bit. It's shrouded in secrecy and that's, you know, parallel or mirrors the actions of, you know, the, the main guy we're talking about here. And I suppose it was always going to boil over at some point. Um, and I suppose it has, and people have just turned their back and it's become apathy, like I said, and, and you've seen the, the empty stands, and I've never seen it as empty as that as I did last week. And no, I, and I've, I've, I've been there, I've, I've been every single season, and, you know, the 2005 season, you know, I was told after that that they didn't even look at the tape from the 2005 season, it was so bad. And even the 2005 season, that was just, also unwatchable was not as bad because people could go, okay, yeah, you know, they're going to change things and da, da, da. This, there is this feeling of no hope. And I think part of the feeling of no hope is the imprinting that fans have had over time that the McNairs are too patient with the things that they shouldn't be too patient with. But I mean, it's a new, it's new people and it's, you know, you, you can't really look to that past, but for outsiders, it's like same old Texans, same old Texans, but it, it, it isn't, it's this whole different thing. Like the best aspects of the Texans were always the ones where there was more community involved with what they were doing and that they explained what they were doing. The worst aspects of the Texans over the years was like, we know better than you. We're not going to explain what we're doing. And I think right now the current Texans have a very difficult time knowing what stuff needs to stay in house and what stuff needs to be said to outsiders and what is the best mechanism for doing that. Like throwing your players under the bus publicly or throwing people under the bus privately um, to select media members, all that does is tell people that things shouldn't stay in the locker room, like that nothing stays in the locker room. Like there were times where things have happened in the past that were kind of messed up 
Um, but it was private. Like, it's like, hey, you know, well, so-and-so's in the doghouse. Okay. Did it, did it come out why that person's in the doghouse? No, because everything is kept in the team. You know, you win as a team, you, you lose as a team, but the, the 2021 Houston Texans are all about focusing on things that have happened in the past without recognizing that 2021 is on you and that you need to have an appealing, artful, professional, competent way of going forward. And you're not showing that in the decisions that you make and the actions that you do. Yeah, I think you, you saw that video of the guy with the, the sign. First of all, it's the owner's box but behind the end zone. Is yes. That is right, okay, because I thought if that was me, I'd have it on the halfway line. But anyway, um, but yeah, I suppose you see that guy and like him, I think he did apparently particularly wrong. He's frustrated. We're all frustrated, you know. And No, I mean, uh, that's Ronnie. He was actually referenced in one of the Sports Illustrated articles. Um, oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah, I remember that, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, And I think part of the deal that they don't fully get is everybody responds differently for things that affect their lives that they have zero control over and that they do not understand and shouldn't understand. Like there is no reason why anyone should understand why the Texans are the way they are right now. I mean, there's, there's no explanation of it that makes any lick of sense. I mean, Andre Johnson just said it very plainly because he was in a position to do so. And later when he was asked about his tweet, he just said, Hey, look, you know, it's one thing to be a character coach, but he's not a football guy. And then Easterby, I think is hurt because he's not, he thinks of himself as a football guy. And if you talk to people who know him in other, they're like, he's, he's, He's thinking that he's a football guy. No, he's not a football guy. And, and the way that you know he's not a football guy is he says and does things that are kind of against football code. And he thinks he knows better. But like with Ronnie, Ronnie, that's one response. But what I've been told over the years, and oh, and by the way, Andre Johnson's criticism, was it answered? No. The only thing that McNair said was, well, you know, Andre has passion. So he basically dismissed one of the more trusted voices, one of the people that he was allegedly, you know, consulting about the new GM choice, which that was kind of a strange process, but that's the process they put out there. Um, he just dismissed it as passion. And what I've been told is, well, you know, the team wants people to be passionate one way or another, you know, that's engagement. And the thing that they fear the most is people caring less, but, you know, frankly, you know, Ronnie, Ronnie's trying, he's fighting for the people that he cares about because he knows so many people are just going to eject off the team because it hurts too much to care about this team and that people need to put their care where it needs to be. And like, so people deal with it in different ways. Like, you know, like, for example, I know a group of people who are tailgating this next game and are not going into the game. They're just going to hang out in the parking lot with their friends, which is sad. Like that's sad. And then there's other people who are like, hey, look, this is above my pay grade. I support the team no matter what. And it's not the player's fault. And I'm going to be sorting. Like there's so many different ways. And I've mentioned all this stuff in my pin tweet, but people are trying to fight for the team. Like we know what it was like to lose a team. 
And this feels like the bad Oilers days where strange things that are not very well explained and can't be explained are happening and they feel abandoned by leadership. Like I get that over and over again. Like, why is it that you care so much about this person who's off-putting? And, and it's not just, you know, like people are like, oh, well, the media is making this into a big thing. Like, you know, media is using Jack as, as a distraction. And I guess people can have that point of view, but this is all that people can know of him. The Sports Illustrated articles that were not responded to, his own tweets, um, uh, visually what they see of him, his interactions of stuff, the things that people that are trusted, that they trust about football things are saying about him and looking at his bio, just take his name off of it. If you had somebody who had that background and had all of those responsibilities listed on his bio, how could that be workable? Oh no! Like, yeah, yeah. like yeah. we don't know him as an individual, but if just the external of what we know, that's not tenable. Yeah, and it goes back to that accountability thing, right? So you've got you know him more than more so the guy who co-signed the the destruction of this whole thing, um, and you know. And you've got well. At this point, they're all blaming that on O'Brien. Everything well, oh yeah, but that's, that's easy. Everything is O'Brien's fault, yeah, and, which is not a really great message for future head no, coaches. No, exactly. And then that's easy to do, but we all know that's not the case because you know you you had the direct depiction of, of O'Brien walking around his his gated community or whatever it was, talking to Jack one side or the other of the road. You know, to when he did that press conference post the post the hop trade and all that kind of stuff but you've got him who's quite clearly not been accountable for the mistakes made you've got an offensive play caller who's quite clearly not accountable for the lack of output you've got a head coach who's quite clearly not accountable for some of the mistakes he's made and then that all then falls on to a newly appointed overbearing GM who's you know not necessarily been accountable for for his so I think there's there's got to come a point of change at some point because they've got to try and change the direction of this because and you can say okay we can move on from Watson we'll come on to one of the stories that come out about that but the something's got to change at some point because you can't keep on this track there's 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 very few ways to improve this team that needs a complete makeover in terms of talent in terms of young players in terms of productive young players um and you can tell people are hurting right now and as I said at the start you know yeah. I've got there's there's a lot of kind of things that need to be fixed um but it doesn't feel like it's going well, in a direction I mean, it can be fixed. I, I think a lot of it just comes to goodwill and trust. And, you know, for any leader, if, if you are lacking in that much goodwill and trust, at some point you just need to say, this is not good for the organization. It's not good for me personally. It's not good for my family. This is not a good situation and you need to resign. I mean, I've said that before, but like, it's pretty evident. Mm, yeah. It's an and, easy fix. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're looking to create goodwill, every, the, the only thing that Houston Texans have, fans have wanted over two decades is to have credible people at all levels of their organization. The business side of the organization has had a lot of credible people that try very hard and are good at their jobs the football organization has been kind of up and down and they've, you know, it's hard. It's hard to do that job, but this is so evidently not credible. 
And so the, the, the thing that smart football people have been telling me is, you know, if, if you're talking about regaining trust in internal and external stakeholders is Jack is too much of a divisive figure and too much of a high ego figure to be in the organization. He wouldn't see it that way, but I mean, he is like, just objectively, he is a divisive figure. Like you have, you have people waving stuff at the owner's box. He's a divisive figure. I think the first thing is that. I think the second thing is to get um, a credible head coach. And that's gonna be hard to get somebody to come in in the situation. I think that the McNairs need to have less um, hands-on um, influence on, on all the process things because they are not football. Like they see themselves as football people. And, you know, but if you interfere too much with the real football people, then people don't want to work with you. Now, the good thing that the McNairs have is they've never been cheap about things and that they're willing to spend money. Like I know people like, oh, sell the Texans. Oh yeah, you're gonna get somebody to come in and take on debt and are they gonna spend money the same way? Like these people are willing to spend money. And that, you know, that is a big, that's a big part of winning franchises in, in every level of sport. Um, and then Nick needs to have, Nick needs to be in a less visible role because and I mean I think he is in his like in back in the day they would they had the one voice point of view which is the head coach is the one voice that's the voice you're going to hear and I think they overplayed that a little bit you know when there were situations where the GM really should talk about the situation but there's a lot to be said with the leader of your team being the leader of your team and it's not a committee. It's, you know, yeah, do they have to, inter do they have to work with their team? Sure. But you need, you need that person. And, and, you know, David Culley has some good aspects to what he's doing, but it's so overwhelmed by the things that are really not something that he can grow into. Yeah. I think as well is a first, is a first time head coach in, in his sixties. Cause I think the thing is as well, it's like, I've talked about this other weeks, but I don't know what he brings really. And I know it was the the guy for this situation, and it was it was a you know it's it was a horse for this course. But I don't think there's any course in a head coach capacity that he can run because it just feels like it's just not credible. But as you said, there's all this stuff going on in the background that may and, and as as the last season, it may detract from your ability to get the best possible coaching staff in. But I think they maybe have to try this off season and do that. They have to. Because, and, and the odds are against them. And if Nick pulls it off, then yeah, that's his first big win as a GM because he doesn't have one yet. Um, but yeah, I think they have to because you have to restore some sense of credibility to... Just, just to the team in general and to free agents and to... Well, and and the Watson thing, you know, I mean, all of this that we've already talked, the Watson thing is an issue. Yeah. I don't know how that's going to be resolved. Like, I know that there's lots of people that go, oh, well, you know, everything's going to be fixed once we trade Watson and get these picks. But I don't, I don't think that his legal issues are going to be resolved before the draft unless... There's some, like, the public posturing of that is not in favor of that. 
it just isn't. Um, and, and I mean, I think the biggest issue is Janice does not want him to be a Houston Texans anymore and player anymore. And, you know, how you can't be paying somebody that much money not to play. But, you know, you also have the point of view that you want all your people to be all in. Like how, like this is a box, not of Nick Casario's design, but part of it, part of it is of his design because of the personnel with the Texans that don't make it a a great situation to go forward. Um, And, and, uh, you know, it's said to be a little personal between the McNairs and um, Watson. And, but like, really, it is weird to think that the Houston Texans want a whole bunch of picks back to take their problem, which is what really the current situation is until everything is resolved. And the legal you know, the legal timeline is not the same as the football timeline. It just isn't. And, and so I think people are making a lot of assumptions like, oh, well, he wasn't traded by the deadline. Well, he'll be traded before the draft when you know which draft spots are taken. That's a big assumption. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I think to, for, the, for the two timelines to align, you, <laughs> it seems implausible yeah. plausible based on what you've said, what a lot of people have said about the backload courts and everything. I saw a headline from Amy Dash, I think it was yesterday, it said that the prosecutors were likely... Yes to present a case to a grand jury in January. Could you explain that one for us then for the layman's out here? Yeah, um, it's very, first of all, it's very strange to get comments from lawyers on ongoing litigation. Mm. <laughs> like they're really, ethically, they're not really supposed to do that. And so, but I mean, look at the, I don't <laughs> know what particular reasons why, um, like, I, I don't know what the choices are in this regard, but Typically, that's not what how things are handled. I will say that the grand jury process is just a way to get people to come in, like you know, under um, is it's like it's a way of investigating. I guess is is the thing. So just because a grand jury is involved with a situation, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, sometimes it's the only way that you can really get as a as a defendant or as a potential defendant to get your version of the facts in front of people. Um, I mean, it's certainly not something that you want to have happen, but if there is a dispute between people, um, having a grand jury process is a way to do a full investigation, but it's not just investigating the things that the plaintiff wants investigated or just investigating the things that Watson wants to get investigated. It investigates everything, everything all the interactions that everybody had. I mean, just investigating one of these situations would be difficult. This many is very difficult. Um, I would think that maybe, you know, like a lot of times you don't know when prosecutors are going to take something in the grand jury. I mean, I'm guessing from what I read that they think, you know, this might be the time frame because they're trying to arrange people's schedules. Um, but I wouldn't want to put money on it. <laughs> like, oh, it's going to happen December or January based on interactions with witnesses. It could, but it could not. 
And, and um, the fact this is grand jury, is that that's a criminal line, is that rather than a civil? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there's two. Yeah. Just to explain, the civil process is when you sue somebody for money. The criminal process is when there is the risk of, you know, prison, right? And so you have a district attorney who looks into that sort of thing and the police that looks into that sort of thing. On the civil side, you have lawyers representing each side. Um, it was unusual that this case originally started as a civil case and then turned into a criminal case. It's very difficult when there's this many people in um, this many people involved with one lawyer handling it, handling things because it's very difficult to make get everybody on the same page because they may not have exactly the same set of facts or the same the same desires. Like it may be that some people want to settle, but other people don't want to settle. You know, and how do you handle that situation? There may be some some of the plaintiffs who um, wanted a civil case, but feel very uncomfortable with the criminal law investigation and even starting the criminal law investigation for some of the plaintiffs might reflect poorly on the other plaintiffs. Like, you know, they might not want, you know, like, I don't care who you are. The police knocking around in your personal business isn't a fun process. <laughs> So it's really, it's, it's among the most complicated fact situations that you could possibly have. Like it is because there's PR aspects of it. There is power aspects of it. There's the employment aspects of it. Um, there's the reputational aspects of it. All of those things together make things difficult. It's, it looks like the, the, the um, civil lawyers have kind of a different view of how these kinds of cases should be handled just kind of strategically. Um, I mean, it's just really, it's a, just a difficult situation. I, I mean, I personally, if, if we're taking you know, the NFL stuff aside, I think that the way that this has hap has transpired and a lot of it is just kind of accidents of people and, um, stuff is I wish that all the parties could come together to find a way to have a restorative outcome of this because no matter what happens in the civil cases and threats of like we're going to get into your business and you're going to get into my business ultimately nobody's nobody's viewpoints are going to change at the end of the day, no matter what the results of things are. And people are going to have the ugly thoughts that they have about various people involved with this, no matter what the outcome is. And the only way that the parties can get an outcome that they control is if they fashion it themselves. Like, you know, I was reading something that says, Oh, well, you know, I want justice. Da, 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 da. Well, you know, the criminal, the criminal pot process, is it going to get you justice? Is it going to get you vindication? It might, it might in somebody's heart, and that's a very individual decision, but it is painful for everybody involved. 
Like, I, I, I don't think that people really get an understanding of how painful the civil and criminal litigation process is and that it doesn't have to be that way, that you can create an outcome that maybe doesn't feel great for everybody, but is something at least that you can control. And, and for us on the outside, all the way that this is discussed by people, like it's sport, like this is not sport, this is people's lives. It's hard to keep the humanity at the center of the discussions of this, just because people have their own experiences that they bring to the table and their own interests that they bring to the table. And it's, it's difficult. Like, you know, for example, there was some discussion of, well, you know, you could trade Watson and you could make the picks conditional on how much time he misses and that, and that, and And I'm like, what an ugly process where fans are put in the position where they're rooting for certain outcomes in courts or certain outcomes with employment decisions. And it's just, I don't think that there's a good outcome to it, but I, I hope that everybody that is watching and listening keeps humanity at the center and recognizes that, that, you hurt people the way that you talk about it yeah. and it doesn't, and, and that everybody should take care with that. And it's hard. It's a hard thing to do because we're football people. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a parallel domain, but it, fe- it feels like that it could have just been handled and both sides of the table could have been advised and acted in a very different way uh, than they've done. Well, that's, I don't want a Monday morning quarterback on that too much yeah. because a lot of times the way that things kind of bubble up to the surface happen to be accidents. You, know, you happen to call this lawyer or this person happened to, you know, or, you know, it's, you know, you don't have a way back machine, but sometimes the way that cases get to the point where they are, are accidents. And then people get kind of revved up by it. Cause like originally, for example, um, it, the, the women were anonymous. And the lawyer said, hey, if, if, if this has happened to you, you come forward and I'll keep your name anonymous. And that's not something he could have promised because Texas law doesn't allow that as a process. But then once people's names, once people were more vested in it and their names were out there, it makes this process even more hurtful and harmful and difficult. And, and everybody, you know, everybody is everybody's looking out for their own situations. It's just, it's just hard on everybody. It's just hard on everybody. And I mean, it's not a, it's not a perfect process that we have. It's better than some in in parts of the world. And, and all we can do as outsiders is just try to keep humanity at the center of the discussions. Yeah. You got to hope for everybody's sake. It can conclude in a way that, you know, people can, Move on, because you know, as you said, it's just it's two two very 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 distant uh, realities clashing in a in a kind of public and ugly way. I think, and it's just it's not uh, it's not, I, not something we want to be talking about. A, you know? Yeah, I hope that there is a restorative way that they can come to a resolution, because at this point, the only people that are benefiting from this are the lawyers. Yeah, that's right, and the bills must be astronomical right now on both sides. So. It's uh, yeah. Well, not on both sides because well, yeah, on one side. Plaintiff side. <laughs> yeah, the plaintiff side yeah. is more, you know, 
contingency fee. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. And then you've got a 38 million signing bonus that never played a down for this ball club. And I think that's the, the kind of odd, uh, odd um, background circus that's gone on. And that leads to a, an uncompetitive football team for the first time in its history. Bar a playoff defeat by Kansas City, didn't put a point up on a Sunday. And it's just, uh, that's not good enough. So hopefully there'll be there'll be some change um, to come. Steph, in, in terms of getting out of this, how, how would you see this playing out or what needs to happen for us to, you know, and I think really the timeline for me, I think now is probably 2023 to to be a competitive football team should things go the right way and there's just 101 variables in there. But beyond the kind of stuff we talked about, how would you see progress? I have no idea because, you know, there used to be a way where you could project, okay, they're going to do this, that, and the other thing based on what they've done in the past. This is a whole new ball game. Cal McNair is a relatively new owner. You have the strange things with Watson. You have everybody kind of new at their jobs. We don't know who's going to stay and who's going to leave. Um, We don't know compensation for Watson or even if they can get rid of Watson. there, I mean, there's just so many different variables. It could be, it could be never. It, yeah. I mean, I mean, not never, never, no, but I mean, think yeah. of, I mean, think of all the organizations that have gone out in the wilderness. Now, I, I don't like to think that that would happen. I think that that there are people in place that are trying desperately not to make that happen. But, um, you know there's entry and exit points for people and, you know, they need to rebuild trust. They need to rebuild confidence. Um, I think that the way, like, if you look at the early press conferences for Nick and, and the Texans, it was kind of like, it was almost like a response to like, well, O'Brien was really powerful and would MF people. And, we are going to be the good guys and we're going to do things the right way. And we're going to get good guys in and da, 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 da. And it's like, okay, first of all, you know, some of that language is kind of denigrating to the people that came before you. And secondly, um, the response to O'Brien being a strong head coach who had a lot of power uh, isn't to get someone who has very little power and has completely the opposite point of view. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, I think the futures are infinite. It's the choices that they make now. Um, like if everything hit right, you could get a huge, like, you know, Nick Casario is supposed to be good at finding personnel. If you can get the rest of the football infrastructure in a way where it's not off-putting, like, who is perfect enough to be playing for the Houston Texans these days? The, the team that is out of the playoffs, or I mean, like, no possibility of playoffs, and yet, you know, needs to dis- keep people out of games, discipline people out of games. Like, who is pure and good enough? And, like, here, who's the smart who are the smart players, the smart, smart, tough players who want to come to an organization where all the smart players, tough players in the in team history have rejected the approach that they're taking right now? 
Like who is pure enough? Is Sir Galahad the football player about to come to the Houston Texans? Well, I guess he did. Like, they need to re- <laughs> Yeah. I mean, at at some point they need to they need to instead of blaming okay everything was O'Brien and da 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 and you know we've lost our way yeah they have lost their way, but they also have to look in the mirror and see their own issues and see where they can get to the point where they resemble a competent organization to the outside world and have an appealing message to all the stakeholders, to the players, to the fans, to the advertisers, to everyone. Because the way that they've handled things is inartful and unappealing. Like, you know, I think that they brought David Cully to be the appealing story, but all that does is just make you feel sorry for him, that he's been put in this situation. Like, I feel good that he's being paid, yeah, it's almost like they've ruined his, not ruined his reputation, but certainly they've put a, a, a bit of a, a different slant on a career that was a sort of kind of widely accepted position coach and now he's kind of stepped up above that and it's a great retirement check, but I think it's, it's almost done him a little disservice. And of course, there was no way he couldn't take the job because, you know, it's probably his dream and, and maybe never thought it was going to be realised, but it almost feels like he's done himself a little bit with the service than, uh, than perhaps he would uh, I think, I think, I think the David Culley story is good for him that he got the money and, you know, his, his basic nature is going to stay intact. It's just, you know, there's been any number of good guys who've taken over NFL teams and have been a out of their element and B put in the worst situation that you could be in. Cause anybody in that head coach spot with the organization structured the way it is would be undermined. Just the nature of it. For me, a big thing that they've not addressed, and I'm surprised at this, um, and again, talking about people who are complicit in the downfall, a complete restructure of the front office, because if you think of the sustainable models, and that's a word that Casero uses continually, a sustainable model of the good teams, of the power franchises that continue to be good or, or there or thereabouts every year, your Baltimore's, your Pittsburgh's, your Green Bay, they're all really good at drafting. And we've not been that. And and I, and I know you kind of... I'm curious about that. Yeah, it's not been touched. The, the model or the previous model still exists in theory. It's the same people making those evaluations. Um, okay, you've got different coaching staff in part, but not not wholly, um, you know, evaluating players. So I would love to see... Uh, a reprogramming of, of that function to, to, to make us better. But it seems like we're going in into another draft this year with potentially more picks. We'll see. Uh, who knows? Um, but it feels like we're kind of go, going and not with our guns loaded in that sense. And I may be doing some people a disservice, but it the, the one of the big reasons why we're in that is we've just missed on many picks and we've and we've and we've got out you know got rid of talent. Um, and the and the next generation has not come through for the large part. And you know you can th- well. And I think I think part of it is it all goes together. It all goes like it doesn't matter what kind of picks you get if you don't have an offensive coordinator who can put together a coherent way of teaching it. It doesn't matter, right? Like there are very few players in NFL history that are good enough to overcome a bad situation. I I call that the Andre Johnson rule. Like most players need a good fit and they need a good situation and and just a whole supportive team. And you know. The biggest problem that the Texans have had in their past is just the whole, um, okay, you get the player, 
Okay, sometimes they were failed by coaching. Sometimes they were failed by themselves. Um, but sometimes they were failed by roster composition. Like, you know, if you have year after year of not having a quarterback, I mean, that reflects poorly on everyone because if you don't have the guy, it's very difficult to run a functioning offense and sometimes more so. And with their particular offense, there's so much involved with it that if you, if you keep on churning people back and forth, it's really, and you're, and you're having a difficult time teaching it. But yeah, no, I think like on the offense side, you're right. I think if there was only one change that could come about this off season, if I could just watch a new offense next year with some revised talent, that would be a step forward because it's got to the point where it's, it is unwatchable. It's uninspired. Um, it's not well taught. Um, well, like, like, for example, there, you know, there's the point of view, oh, well, you know, Texans running game, they need, they need a bunch of new running backs. Well, yeah, you can, you can get a bunch of new running backs from the draft, and that's a, that's a position that can excel at an early time. But the, the Texans haven't had a good running game since the Kubiak era. You know, Arian Foster stayed with, with O'Brien for a bit, but you could tell that there was a difference. A lot of his runs were just his own individual effort versus running easy. So, yeah, I, I'm, there's a lot to be, there's a lot to improve, I think. There's a lot to, lot to kind of, lot to kind of churn over. What's your kind of expectations for the, the last few games of the season? Is it just uh, go a little bit further into that tank in, in, uh, of the last five games or are you expecting much? See more, see more of the rookies and hope that they don't get hurt and hope that they're put in good spots and not asked to do things that are difficult things to do that, um, that, that are beyond everybody's capabilities. Yeah, that's right. I think you want, you want to see guys put in positions, get some tape out there. And- like Titus Howard. Yeah. Let, let Titus Howard be a tackle. It just seems so obvious, doesn't it? Just like it's just you know he was drafted. No, they're they're smarter than everybody. Yeah. Like you know, who cares? You know, <laughs> who cares what actual offensive linemen say about this stuff? Yeah, yeah. Well, the players play and see where we hope. I think there's a lot of change to come, and I'm sure this off season will probably be just as eventful, if not more, uh, with some premium draft spots um to actually talk about and have a relevancy at that time of year than we've we've been uh they've been robbed of in the last couple of years. But um but Stephanie Stradley, thank you very much for your time today. I'm glad I'm glad to have this time and I just hope for all of our sakes that the people that who who want to like the Houston Texans have more reasons to like the Houston Texans, like real reasons and 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 just that the whole situation's healthier. I hope that more than anything. Yeah, they've not made it easy, I think. Um, I've got to go away now and make peace with a certain defensive lineman that didn't like some of my tweets um, this morning. Um, oh, no. And uh, We'll see where we get to that. And uh, But thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Steph, for our time. Um, we'll keep sticking with it. We'll keep trying to make sense of it, um, trying to find new things to talk about. But the central issues remain as this team tries to climb out a bit of a hole we're in right now and it's a pretty bad place but I feel like you know we'll, we'll get there one day we've got to persevere it'll be worth it when it comes around again but Steph thanks for your time um, if you've not checked to the website podcasttexans.com please do that if you're liking Facebook Twitter 
YouTube, give us a share, give us a like, all that kind of good stuff. Get those algorithms churning and we'll be back again next week, perhaps for a predictable outcome against the Seattle Seahawks, but we'll speak to you then.